like. Unless you're, unless you're Billy D. Williams. Hello and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. I'm sure you all missed us as we were gone last week, but I was unexpectedly pulled to L.A. when my 6'8 associate uh, was fired in L.A. by his temperamental tangerine boss uh, in Washington, D.C. So I... Welcome back, Matt. So I have been helping him... Um, talk to the New York Times about particular things, which you may have heard about in the last 24 hours, so you can thank CPET for that fine work. Yeah. <laughs> You're so powerful. You're so powerful. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, switching focus from um, the doldrums of American politics, um, we're going to get kind of into the framework for great schools in New York City, and while this is New York City-focused, we also want to stress that there are a lot of states and cities and other school districts that have similar frameworks. So even if you're not in New York City, it's helpful to think about the dimensions that your school is evaluated on and how to understand how um, those evaluations fit in with other things that teachers are held, excuse me, held accountable for, um, which we'll talk about later. So um, I'm joined today on my left by Brian. Hey, yo. And on my right by Christina. Hello. And across from me, staring me down with an angry, angry face. That's right. <laughs> Roberta. Watch out. <laughs> um, so I just want to give everyone kind of a heads up. We'll, we have some more podcasts related to um, the rubrics and evaluations related to the framework for great schools coming. Um, podcasts on some of the CPET initiatives. We also have the conclusion of our One Book, One New York series that will be coming out. Um, in the coming weeks, and then possibly a policy pod revisiting the first one um, as the new educational budget from Trump has come out and the movement of Betsy DeVos's administration um, seems to be picking up. Um, remember to subscribe, uh, review, um, give us five stars so that Apple will think we're important and we can reach out to more people. Um, also, if you've enjoyed the resources, please continue to check them out at our blog at cpet.tc.columbia.edu. Um, and now, after that little bout of capitalism, um, <laughs> let's move in. in to the framework for great schools. So, Christina, can Woo-hoo! you... <laughs> framework for great schools! Yes, there should be, like, some cheering and clapping. Where's that little, um... We don't have sound effects yet, that's what you we need them. We need them. <laughs> Stay tuned for that on our next podcast. <laughs> After your review. Um, so, Christina, can you just start us out with a general overview of what the framework for great school is, um, is and how we kind of understand it? Sure. Um, so, the framework for great schools is just that. It is a framework um, that the new administration um, really identifies as the areas um, that are important to student achievement, to ensuring student achievement, to best practices, and to really ensuring that our schools are supporting our students to be successful um, academically and beyond. Um, It's a graphic. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but at the center, of course, is student achievement, right, and how we're really getting students and promoting students to the next level. Surrounding that are the student supports, um, such as the supportive environment, rigorous instruction, and collaborative teachers. And then surrounding that, as if you're imagining concentric circles, right, are are beyond the classroom supports, um, including effective school leadership and strong family and community ties. And then what kind of ties that all together 
um, is trust, right? Mm -hmm. And ensuring that there is trust um, both with teachers and students and then the larger school, the larger community, um, and, and in the home as well. So, yeah. yeah. No, that, that's really helpful. I mean, I guess maybe we should back up a step in. Why is it that there's a framework for, for grade schools? Well, um, frameworks in general just give us, um, I think, benchmarks that we can use for reflection, observation, um, and potentially improvement along certain lines. Um, just like the Danielson framework for uh, teaching uh, mm -hmm. exists as a sort of opportunity for teachers to compare their practice uh, against some standard, um, the framework for great schools allows schools to do the same thing. Um, so rather than have some sort of um, holistic, subjective, mm -hmm. how's this school doing feel, um, to um, coming up with some idea of, uh, of measuring school effectiveness, um, the framework allows us to say, like, okay, here's a discrete point. Mm -hmm. Let's compare a school's practice to a standard of practice on a, a discrete particular thing that they're doing. Um, and then uh, allows us to articulate, like, what are the things that, that make a school great? I mm -hmm. mean, you know, it's the, the, old, uh, the old saw, like, you know, I, I can't describe it to you, but I know it when I see it, right. which I believe, um, going back to the 80s, the Attorney General Ed Meese used to describe pornography. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, what makes an excellent school? Well, you walk into a school and you think, hey, look, they're mm -hmm. doing great in here, right? And immediately, though, like, our, our sort of initial instincts walking into school could be wrong, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we want to be sure that um, students are getting what they deserve. So if I'm hearing like what you're saying, right, part of the reason that we have this framework is that there are subjective things in how we view a school as being good, but instead of letting them stay in the abstract and stay subjective, saying this is what we're going to evaluate the school on and this is what we mean when we talk about uh, quality teacher collaboration. Sure. This is what yeah. we mean when there's effective administration. Yeah, exactly right. And I think uh, what Christina uh, pointed out, that that outermost ring in the sort of visualization of the framework is trust. Mm -hmm. All work of the school has to be rooted in trust between teachers, between teacher and admin, students and teachers, students and parents, parents and admin, everything is rooted in trust. Um, and without articulating that, one could walk into a school and see like a quiet classroom where kids raise their hand dutifully, but they might be compliant right. out of fear right. rather mm -hmm. than out of trust. And so to interrogate a little bit into what is the school doing, how, is it, um, how, is, how are its students uh, performing, what are the sort of steps that they're taking to, to make this whole process work, well, if it's some you know, fear-based compliance structure, that's not what we would call a great school. Um, so to, to articulate a vision of what a great school looks like, to, to um, talk to teachers and principals, parents, students, to see... Is that, is that what's going on? Is there this overall level of trust? And then, how does that trust manifest in terms of the relationships that all the various stakeholders in a school have? Such an important <coughs> thing to think about in terms of the cultural shifts that we might have in the, I think, like the cultural inertia um, that you have to keep reminding oneself and a school community that it is all about trust, that administrators, teachers, and students are all on the same page. We want to educate students. This, we want the students to be successful. But it's so easy for that cultural inertia that students are against the teachers and the teachers are against the administrators and the administrators are against 
you know, the, the bureaucracy. And it's so easy that these relationships can become antagonistic, that focusing on it's not about antagonism or, or having power over people, but it's about everybody grouping together, that collaborative spirit that's going to really help to move the school and to move the students. Mm-hmm. Well, so something that I want to pick up on both that Christina and Brian have said is this focus on trust. And I'm just you know, curious, how did it come to be that trust was this big factor? I mean, especially you're talking about in this age of standardized testing and focus on student achievement. I mean, what has changed over time that has led us to this point? Well, we have not always had a trusting environment. And, yeah. and in New York City, is sort of a unique beast in the world of education with 1.1 million students at 1,850 schools. The largest school district in the world. The largest school mm-hmm. district in the world, um, people from all over the world, and every single kind of school you can imagine, all under a singular leadership. So in smaller districts, the the, the politics and the policies, are I think they're probably going to be as... as uh, dynamic as they are, but New York is just so much bigger. And the other thing that's unique about New York City is that the school system is under mayoral, con- mayoral control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be separate from the mayor's office, but um, but the mayor's office did take it over. And when they took it over, they took it over during a time where there was a lot of uh, debate. There's a lot of um, distancing there was a lot what, of what year are you talking about Roberta and this is like the late I don't, I don't remember exactly the year that um I can look it up um <laughs> that that when the mayor's office took it over mm. um but I thought that was in the 80s yeah I think so I mean it was yeah, a, it was a like long a, time ago but that it was centralized every borough was its own thing and mm-hmm. unique and there was a lot of um what's the word I'm looking for there was a lot of corruption. That was, that's the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was Disconnect. a lot. There was a lot of dis- There were lots of disconnects. There was a lot of corruption, and there was a lot of sort of people um, not really working in the best interest of the students. And so, when the mayor's office took it over, and the the mayor appoints the chancellor for the Department of Education, and under Bloomberg and Klein, the business model really mm-hmm. came into fruition, and the idea and the theory of action was that principals need to be like the CEOs of their building. They need to have greater control over the finances and over the decision-making, the hiring and the firing, um, and therefore principals are also responsible for the success of their school. And if the school isn't doing well, then they too can be fired. And they they moved quickly and uh, to, to really put that sort of business that sort of hard nose and it's by the numbers and they, you know, to their credit, moved the city forward in using data to inform instruction and in, in collecting massive amounts of data to understand, to try to understand what schools are doing well. How would we know that? How could we predict how schools should be doing? What are fair ways to evaluate schools? Um, but that model really led to, like in, you know, the early 2000s, mid-2000s, you know, 2012 and 13, it led to a model of the report card schools. That mm-hmm. the schools were reviewed annually, and then they were given a grade, just like students were given on their report card. And you got an A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. or an F. Mm-hmm. And if you had so many low grades for so many periods of time, then you were put on the chopping block. Either your principal was put on the chopping block to be fired, or your school was put on the chopping block to be closed down. And the city felt so strongly about that methodology that they went to court over uh, against the UFT and against the state many times around schools that they were trying to close that, that others felt should not be closed. When the community said this school shouldn't be closed and the DOE was trying to close the doors. 
um, at that time, they focused purely or almost purely <laughs> on the data, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 60% of the, of the score was based on students' credits, accumulating credits in high school or progress in elementary and middle school and state test scores. 25% was based on graduation and the different kinds of diplomas that students got, either a local diploma or an advanced diploma for higher for higher exam scores or for taking college-level courses. So that's 85% of the school's rating is based on hard numbers. And, you know, schools have, they definitely can impact those numbers, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily solely individually responsible for them. Um, only 15% of the rest of that rating then under Bloomberg and Klein was based on um, the school environment, right. or how how the community felt about it, or what teachers or you know what teachers said about the school, or what 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 students said about the school, or parents said about the school. Mm-hmm. So it was very very sort of strict by the numbers, and it was quantitative data all the way. And then um, when there was a shift in leadership at the mayor's office, then there's also a major shift in education as well. So as Bloomberg left and the De Blasio administration and Carmen Perenia came in to office, they pushed back against mm-hmm. that idea of the corporatization. They pushed back against the idea of closing failing schools, and they really looked for a more humane okay. um, and a more really compassionate uh, and, and even community-based... Positive focused. language, yeah. too, right? The way that we're talking about these schools That's that right. need support, that need... Um, you know, improvement. That's right. Yeah. And in doing so, they developed the framework for great schools and then set up the new system of evaluation to lessen the burden on that quantitative data and increase uh, the sort of look on qualitative data based on quality reviews, mm-hmm. the learning environment survey, which is taken by students, parents, and teachers, and and also by the data, but it's now it's worth about eleven percent of the school's overall rating as the opposed quantitative. to the quantitative right. is is based on about eleven percent as opposed to uh, the eighty five percent in the past. And the other big switch that the that the De Blasio Ferreira administration um, made was that they took away the idea of the letter grades. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said it was too punitive, and it just it sort of pinned people in 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 a in a category that that wasn't really very fair or realistic and they went to a more metric rating so now schools get a rating across seven areas they don't get a total score they don't get a final grade but they get basically get a score out of one to five on um, the seven areas that are aligned with the framework for grade schools yeah yeah so i mean i think that's really helpful to think about this history and how it's shaped over time and you know the way that Uh, those over schools view schools and then how school administrators are going to view schools um, because of this change in framework but I'm just I think it's also helpful to think about how this actually translate into practice I mean how does this right if trust is the big thing how does this influence uh, the growing trust or dissipating trust in a building and kind of parent involvement in schools I can say as a parent the school's quality guide is the first thing that I looked at when I went to see where should my son go to school next. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that I can see how are they doing with their scores, how are the, how do people feel about being at the school. And so I would imagine that that knowing that it this these ratings are completely open to the public every year, you know, nice new shiny new little packet with graphics and everything that says, you know, all these basic things about the school. 
it's definitely one of the major things that parents look at. And New York City is a city of choice, and there are some restrictions, but, you know, in middle school, you can choose any school in your district, and in high school, you can choose almost any school in the city based on their own individual criteria. So the burden is really on parents and on their kids, uh, if you're in my family. <laughs> yeah, we do that research, child. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the burden really is on parents to decide where do I want to go and then put that on the list of, uh, on their list of choices. And so I would think that how schools are presenting in their data then is going to have a major impact on their enrollment. Who's coming and how are they coming? Are they choosing to come to my school or are they getting thrown in there? And that changes the culture. Yeah, so I think that's that seems like a complicated, almost counterintuitive argument, right? So you would normally think at a school level, this is going to be like, okay, we need to build trust with parents, but parents are thinking about their kids and we'll see, ah, this school is already well performing so I'm going to go in trusting that school yeah. mm-hmm. whereas a narrative of a school that might not be as higher performing has a less pleasing narrative that those parents that are involved won't take their parents to that school so in almost a weird way it's like the snake eating its own tail Ouroboros I believe they call it <laughs> <laughs> big fancy words um, well I think I mean to that point, too, I mean, I think that as, as everyone was talking, that yes, there's there's something to be said about trust within the school and among mm-hmm. the teachers and the staff and the teachers and the students, but I think it's also, I mean, it's interesting that it's the outer layer, right, of the framework because mm-hmm. I think there's also implications that parents and teachers can trust that there is effective school leadership going on, yeah. mm-hmm. that there are strong family ties, that yeah. there's rigorous instruction, yeah. that there is, so it's, I think that there's um, sort of multiple meanings or implications that this trust is in the outer layer, right? Because there are different levels there, right? Like, what does that trust mean? What, how do I know, right, that my student, if I do decide to send them there, is going to be getting all of these different things? Mm. Because ultimately, I think, and Roberta can speak better because I don't have kids yet, but that's what um, we're hoping for student achievement, right? Like, that's ultimately what our goal is, is that they're going to do well and they're going to succeed, right? I think that that's where the framework goes from a really nice idea to, like, how do you really implement that? Right. Because there's something about, like, the circle of trust, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Meet the fuckers or something, like, once you're in the circle of trust. But also, like, in real life, the circle of trust is a very, very fine line. And yeah. while we might want to, while we would say, and I certainly believe that you need to have trust in your administrators and you need your administrators need to trust their teachers and everybody needs to trust the students that we need to have that, how much trust there really is, is variable. And I think that there is a lot of distrust between the, the different mm-hmm. um, groups and the different people in different positions. And that goes as much for, you know, students who distrust their teachers as it does for principals who distrust mm-hmm. the district or who mm-hmm. distrust their superintendents or who or and vice versa. And so I think that like trust is really important, but it's sort of the thing that keeps it all together, but also it's the the thing that locks it down. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it, it's gonna be really hard to move authentically in those other areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't want to belabor this point because I wanna think about Um, how this framework impacts administrators and teachers as well. But the sense that I'm getting from the conversation is that with this trust on the outside, for some schools, right, that trust is coming from the outside in, right? The school Mm -hmm. has been built up. It's coming in from the parents, so the parents trust the administrators. But for other schools, 
they're that are maybe struggling they have to work from the inside out yes. mm-hmm. they have to build that trust from the student achievement mm-hmm. to the principal is that is that fair mm-hmm. i think that that's fair but i wouldn't necessarily put the caveat of in struggling schools okay. mm-hmm. i think yeah. that there are a lot of mm-hmm. high performing schools that struggle with trust just yeah. as much okay. that, that yeah. the trust actually has a lot more to do with sort of the people the personalities and the this the the teaching style the leadership style um, and that things can sort of look one way, but but be different on the, when you're on the inside. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that, too. I mean, I think that um, one of the questions that comes up for me, too, is how you can see that, like how, how yeah. that actually manifests in yeah. a school building, right? Like how do you know that there's trust going on? Yeah. I mean, yes, there is, which I think we're going to get into in a little bit. There are sort of measures that mm-hmm. the... the um, administration articulates, right? Like the survey, right? right. Like answering questions in a multiple yeah. choice um, survey that you're taking on the computer. But when I walk into a school, how do I know yeah. that there's trust? What mm-hmm. are sort of those indicators? What yeah. is the evidence, yeah. right? Um, I did a PD a couple of weeks ago at a school, not in New York City, <laughs> <laughs> but, but at a PD and I was talking and some of the people, the administrator wasn't there and I was talking with some of the teachers who were very frustrated and, they, and I sat down with them and, well, you know, I don't even know why we're doing this because they don't really care about this and, right. and, and if they really cared, they would be here. And I said, wow, that's so interesting. Tell me your name. And I, and I just said, like, tell me your name so that we can talk a little bit more. And he's like, I'm not telling you my name, Anonymous. Right. Because I don't want anybody to know that I said this and you don't know me yet. Right. And I was like, wow, this is actually supposed to be a place that's very connected um, through their mission. I mean, their mission is all about like brotherhood and connections and things like that. Um, and yet there is so much distrust from a teacher to the principal. Um, mm-hmm. Even when the principal is doing you know, his or her best to, to support the, the, what the teachers wanted and needed, there was so much distrust. And because it's because trust is what you build up every day. You can't just be like, oh, trust. And, mm-hmm. and it's this, you know, ironically, it's not one band that, that actually exists as a circle. It's a hundred little tiny ticks. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a hundred actions that you take every single day with and it's all not, of the people around you. And it's, and it's not constant, right? Like, oh, we've established trust in the building, right? And, and then that's it's it. good. We're good for the rest of the year. We're good for, you know, no matter what. Like, then Here's my checklist at the beginning of the year, right? right. Like bell schedule, <laughs> programs, trust. Check, check, check. Right. Moving on. Right. Well, and so we've been talking a lot now about administrators. And so, Brian, I mean... How does this actually influence administrators' practice? Like, I guess, what is the impact? Sure. I think the, the best um, element of the process um, that I've been involved with with, with a couple of schools um, uh, with this is that uh, schools are required to articulate uh, what's called a theory of action. That is essentially um, sort of um, a set of beliefs about how students best learn and the practices that the school will put in place uh, to help students learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when it comes to the so-called instructional core of um, pedagogy, curriculum, and assessment, the, the three-headed beast, <laughs> um, uh, the, the watchword here is alignment, that if you have a theory of action that students best learn when they're collaborating on creative novel tasks then we'll see that in the curriculum in terms of unit plans, lesson plans. We'll see it in instruction. When I'm in the classroom, students will be together tinkering with things. We'll see it in assessment structures, uh, tasks, and um, tools that are in place to measure those uh, skills that are necessary for students to be creative tinkerers. So 
um, when the school articulates that theory of action through their instructional focus, um, that's the, the, the school's kind of mission statement almost, mm-hmm. to say, this is how we're going to go about doing the work of being a school. And that's a, that's a, a pretty big task. Um, and as an administrator, as a school leader, to um, bring in the various voices of all the different interested parties in your school, students, parents, teachers, administrators, whoever... Um, and kind of uh, weave them together into an easily articulable <laughs> did I get it? Um, theory of action is really a, a huge, huge challenge. But then after you've sort of put that together and you've, you've, you've said this is what we believe good schooling is yeah. for us, then to follow through on that, to mm-hmm. actually have that happen in... Um, in lessons, in the corridors, after school, mm-hmm. in the, the partnerships that you get with outside um, organizations. Yeah. There are so many different possibilities for the actions that a school can take. And if they're not aligned, if they're not consistent, if they're not all working toward the same objective, then we'll, it seems kind of a little bit like willy-nilly. And that's mm-hmm. where perhaps where trust gets lost, mm-hmm. right? If we're just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and see what works for kids like I don't have any trust that you know what you're about Mm -hmm. but if you're able to articulate for me a mission and I'm able to go into your school and I'm able to see you taking appreciable steps that you're then measuring progress on to try to achieve this mission Mm -hmm. circling back around then I can have trust in a school as a collection a community of uh, professionals who are leading it of professionals who are teaching the courses and of students who are involved um, all working toward the same goal. So um, a big challenge that administrators face is uh, kind of bringing all of that together into one theory of action uh, for their school, but then seeing it when the rubber meets the road, yeah. uh, what's mm-hmm. the follow-through, what's the implementation in the school. So I think what I'm hearing you say, and so push back if I'm wrong on this, but the idea that this framework almost allows for a greater centralization of school direction and policy by saying like this is the framework of where we want to go so you need to build an action plan that will get your school there so there is some decentralization and choice there but the end point is further aligned to the aim and to me that makes sense with the story Roberta told us earlier about the centralization of schools um, coming under mayoral control, mm-hmm. I, is that, would you say that's right or? Yeah, I would say that there's. A, I don't know how um, centralized it is because each school is able to articulate their own instructional focus, their own theory of. Action. But it is being coerced by this model, right? And I don't mean coerced in a negative way. I mean it in influenced, that, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. Sure. I mean, they they have to articulate a theory of action that mm-hmm. they, at least they're evaluated on, on. Do you have one, and is it coherent across the school? That's part of the qual. That's one of the factors of the quality review, which is directly was one of the metri- measures that the framework for great schools uses. But so it's like you have to have one, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Mm. And so it is left up to the school to determine what is our theory of action, and that's a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. I think that it's like good on the. The, the district or on the New York City yeah, school district to say you know there isn't one th- 
theory of action. There are hundreds of thousands, and there isn't one way that is the best way for all children. With 1.1 million children in mm -hmm. the in the in the city, you can't decide that that this is the only way that kids learn. Kids learn in massive amounts of ways, and so I love the idea that they give they empower schools to really determine for themselves what is the best way for you to learn. And the better the school can articulate that, the better the school can can create a coherent practice around that, the clearer that vision is going to be, the the better bet that parents like me are going to be able to go, oh, I agree with that theory of action. Mm -hmm. That's going to work really well with my kid, and therefore I choose this school as opposed to that school. My son just went through the middle school process, and there were, there were very, very good schools on the list that he uh, you know, could have applied to that we didn't because I did not agree with their theory of action. And, and so... I think that that is one of the key fa one of the key features here, but mm -hmm. they're not they're not going to say this is what it has to be. Okay. In no. most instances. In most instances, <laughs> yeah. Unless the school yes. is in a form of accountability. Yes. And when the school is in a form of accountability, they're a renewal school, they're a right. struggling school. Then the DOE does exact more and more and more control, and a lot of that is connected to how they're doing meeting their state metrics, Correct. whether they yeah. are or are not, how long they have not been. Schools that have been persistently struggling for you know three to five years do have less control. It's one of the main reasons to come back around to like how does this impact administrators. Mm -hmm. It's one of the main reasons that administrators care about any of these metrics at all. Yeah. Is because I actually want to have autonomy as a school leader. I want mm -hmm. to be able to set right. the direction for my school, and I don't want to have a lot of people who don't know me, who don't know my kids, who don't know my teacher pushing their way, nosing around, getting into our business, asking millions of questions about things they don't, they don't, that they don't have a context to understand. Mm -hmm. So schools you know, want to mm -hmm. be out, they want to fly under the radar, let me get good enough readings that people trust me right. yeah. and know that, that I'm leading my school in the right direction. And schools that are persistently struggling, then there is a breach of that trust between the DOE and the school community. And so the DOE exerts more power and control right. in those situations than it does for schools that have higher student achievement or schools that are showing better metrics on the framework. Right. No, th that, that makes a lot of sense. But so I think where we have to get to now is, I mean, what is the impact that this has on teachers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's mm -hmm. supposed to be greater teacher collaboration, rigorous mm -hmm. instruction in classrooms. Uh, how does this framework actually end up impacting teachers? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on um, a lot of the major points. I, I think that there's definitely been more of an emphasis on teacher collaboration and how teachers are collaborating, right, and the expectation of this idea of teacher teams, right, which is uh, one of the indicators on the quality review. Um, and how are teachers collaborating, right? How are they talking to one another? How are they reflecting on their practice? Um, and this idea of really kind of participating in professional learning communities, as they call them, right? So that they're constantly in a place of um, thinking about their instruction and their curriculum. Um, and I think that to, to Brian's point, and he spoke about this a lot too, I mean, I think that one of the things is that, that is looked at in terms of teacher practice and, and teacher teams um, is this idea of a common belief, a common belief around learning and teaching. And that can stem from um, this theory of, or ideally, right, will yeah. stem from this theory of action that has been put in place um, and articulated by the principal. Is there buy-in? Are teachers actually implementing this, right? Um, questions around how they're using data to inform instruction, right? Are they looking at student work on a consistent basis? Are they talking about it? Are they thinking about it? Are they creating their own sort of plans of action based on what um, they're recognizing in their classrooms? Um, 
And then thinking about also, too, what's been become a little bit more, um, I, I use the word emphasized, right, because it sort of opens it up that it it's often being pushed, right, from administration and perhaps from outside parties as well. But that ideally uh, teachers are um, aligned with it as well, but it, this idea of consistency of practice, right? Like as I'm walking throughout the school and I'm going into classrooms that there is sort of uh, levels of consistency, um, both horizontally, but also vertically, right? And again, that can be um, informed by the larger sort of instructional focus of the school, but it could also be based on what the teachers have recognized as um, important to student learning. So it sounds like a lot from what your answer that you're saying is that teachers actually have a lot of input in this process. I mean, do you think that's true across all schools or, or how does that work? Because if we're talking about the administrator having a theory of action, mm -hmm. it kind of sounds like a pyramid, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have this delegation of instruction and then teachers work within that. But is it possible that teachers have more choice than that? I, I, don't know. I think in, in the ideal sense and when teacher teams are working best um, and, the, and the teacher teams that I've seen is mm -hmm. yes, that they are making decisions. They are decision makers mm -hmm. in the school building, right? Yes. And they are able to say, hey, here's the curriculum that we're using, here's where we've pushed back on it, here's where we've adapted it, here's where we've modified it, here's what in the student data is sort of um, inspiring or informing that, those decisions, and coming back to the principal and saying, hey, here's what we're doing, here's what we've come up with, mm -hmm. right? It's not always the case, but I think um, when they are working really well, and teachers are also, um, they have buy-in to their teacher team. Yes. They believe mm -hmm. in their teacher team. There's trust within that teacher team. Um, they've even perhaps divided up roles and responsibilities to where they've identified teachers who might take on um, certain subject areas for planning or certain units, and now it's sort of more of a distributed leadership model. Yeah. Right. I just agree with that so much, and I think that when we don't see teacher teams working out well, it's because teachers don't, there isn't a clear structure about what are we doing as a team, what is our purpose, what is my role, and how much impact could I have. Mm -hmm. And the idea of teacher leadership and teacher teams and sort of like these professional collaborations is is a relatively new, mm -hmm. when you look at the history of education, it's yeah. a relatively new structure within the last 10 years. When right. I started teaching, my teacher team was our department, and we got together like once a month to talk about what books do you want to order. But everything else was really done individually and independently. And, you know, the idea of the teacher comes in and they shut their door and they, you know, don't see anybody for the rest of the day mm -hmm. is, is sort of how, how many teachers began their career. And somewhere midway around, you know, around 10 years ago, research that started to come out talking about how impactful the work of teacher teams were, how impactful inquiry was mm -hmm. in helping people to consider their practice in new ways. And that really became um, a method that, that districts and states and cities really began to say, no, we need to be doing this. And it, it fundamentally changed the teacher's task list. It mm -hmm. changed yeah. my job description. Mm -hmm. And the, pro the problem that I think that some teachers in some schools have had is that it wasn't on my job description before. And then all of a sudden it was. And I don't understand what that is. I don't know how to do it. Um, I don't feel connected to it. And some people um, unfortunately feel like, why am I being asked to do something extra? Right. right. And so here's this extra task that's put on me. I don't really understand how, how to do it. And so really my participation and my commitment is is pretty minimal yeah. um, and and then the teacher team thing can be a real challenge to figure out how we can organize it how are we going to structure it mm -hmm. how are we going to really put it into motion mm -hmm. and in particular I want to follow up on what Christina said about distributed leadership mm -hmm. right that's that's a key trait that uh, uh, 
observers and reviewers look for when yeah. they go into schools. Um, the, the, the best schools, uh, according to the framework for schools, will have a distributed leadership mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this speaks to um, the difference between buy-in and co-authorship. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about like leadership um, uh, models. Uh, Matt, you sort of hinted at a, a hierarchical setup where admin would articulate mm-hmm. the theory of action and teachers would, would fall in line. That's sort of a buy-in model. So, mm-hmm. hey, here it is. Let me convince you why it's so good. Come along on this ride. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, let's convene the teacher teams. Let's convene the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And let's together write the theory of action. Let's together co-author the instructional focus. And in that point, in that sort of a model, it's not a question of trying to, to, to get people to, to, to believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you don't have to sell it to anyone because they're the ones who created it collaboratively. And that sort of a di- dynamic, again, I think also helps foster trust mm-hmm. at the same time that it trusts the teachers yep. as professionals. So yep. it's this right. virtuous circle of trust that can come if the teacher teams are fostered and, and run in this distributed leadership model. It, it also runs somewhat counterintuitive to what we often think about are the traits of leadership, mm-hmm. which are making the decision right. and telling people what to do and where to go, right? And so I think the the articulation of what's good practice in schools really pushes up against what what's good practice in other places or even you know in business. And people would argue, no, we need collaboration in the same way in business as well. But our definitive sort of imagination of like what does a leader do what does a teacher do well teachers tell kids what they should know and leaders tell teachers what they should do and in fact these methods really talk about no teachers should be listening to kids Mm -hmm. administrators should be trusting their teachers and saying what do you want to do how do you want to and and it really does come down again and again and again to this relationship building and and creating a shared vision for where we want to go as a school but i i think I mean, I like this idea that it's coming from the teacher teams as mm-hmm. opposed to being hierarchical. That's my own bias, but I do think there is a nuance of personality and experience. Yes. Yeah. If you have a very young staff, it might be very hard to come from the bottom up. If you have a principal that maybe got a job very young or is insecure in that position, they may not be willing to delegate that power. And I, I mean, maybe this is a conversation that exists outside the framework converse, conversation, but I think just the complicating factor of humanity is mm-hmm. something that also makes this hard to... That's where professional development comes mm-hmm. in, though, yeah. because I don't think that the framers like, hey, first-year teacher, what do you think kids should learn? When, you know, the person has 20 years of experience and has deeply studied all of the high, rigorous expectations mm-hmm. that kids have to accomplish. So I don't think that there's a sense of, like, whatever anybody wants to do is fine, let's just right. agree to it, right? That the school leader should be saying, you know, I have a vision for where we want to go, and they need to be recruiting and working with teachers to get them to ha- to come on yeah. board with this vision. And then they need to be systematically educating through professional development ha- educating so that everybody is when they're getting ready to make these decisions or to weigh in or to have these collaborative conversations that everybody has a strong understanding of the what the problem is they're trying to solve the way that they're trying to solve it the options that we have in front of us and so building up that professional development and that professional culture is hugely important yeah Yeah. and i also so i i in two consecutive schools two consecutive years went through accreditation Mm-hmm. Um, and as an early career teacher, I found myself on the accreditation committee. And one <laughs> the, not it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was great though because there were teachers with a range of experience, a range of subjects, and both uh, 
both administrations in those schools recognized the value that early career teachers' perspective had. Um, and a school that I uh, do PD coaching at in the Bronx has brought together a professional learning committee where the principal has, has some veteran teachers who even have master teacher status, um, but then also literally some first-year teachers are part of that committee because if we're going to have a conversation about what teachers need, what students need, what's going on at the school, everyone needs to be yeah, involved. That was going to be my point, Brian, and I think that you, to underscore it a little bit more, is that I think a good administrator right, will recognize that they cannot be in all of the classrooms mm -hmm. at all of the time, Yeah. right? They mm -hmm. cannot get uh, a chance to talk to every single student or to look at that student's work. I mean, if you do the numbers, it's just, unless it's a very small school, and then God bless you. But mm -hmm. um, I think that there is um, sort of a implication here that administrators, right, should be relying uh, to mm -hmm. a large part on teachers to be able to come to the table and say, what is going on in these classrooms, right? Like, what are you noticing? What's working? What's not working? Um, so that, you know, and again, if you're thinking of the new year teacher, yeah, they might not be asked to say, okay, you're going to decide the curriculum that we're going to be using for our school building. Those are really high stakes sort of decisions that I think um, in a large part would require a little more experience or at least um, the ability to say, here's different curriculum that we've used, right? But to be able to say that here's something my students are struggling with, what can we do about it, becomes really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more voices you bring to the table, the better you know it will serve everyone yeah. involved. So it, at minimum, right, just being able to say, hey, guys, what, what are the conversations you're having at the grade level or the exactly. content level or the you know, discipline level? Like, yeah. talk to me about it. I, I want to mm -hmm. know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything saying, and that's how I think it would work. I just do think it's worth noting that there are personality yes. and experience factors that, mm -hmm. you know, influence this, that people may not want to work together. And I think that goes back to our conversation about trust. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, maybe that's where that really comes in. And that's the first thing is these one-on-one -on -one relationships. That, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that, so first, duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> But, but let me tell you why you're wrong. No, no, no. No, I'm not yeah. going to tell you why you're wrong at all. But I think that that's actually one of the reasons why it's so valuable to yeah. have, so important to have an, a, a review process and an evaluation process for schools mm. as well as for teachers, as well as for students, that, that nothing is not, nothing is unreviewable. And mm -hmm. that when we look at it closely, when we analyze the progress that a school is making, when we look at it both quantitatively and qualitatively, what we realize is where are the challenges that the school is having? And if the school's having a lot of, um, I, I was working in a school and it, the trust was great. The score, it was a pretty good score of trust. And, but it was like trust between the teacher and the principal, like nine out of 10. Mm -hmm. Trust between the teacher and the students, nine out of 10. Trust between the parents and the principal, nine, 10 out of 10. On the trust survey you're talking on about? On the survey, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Trust between teacher to teacher, five out yeah. of 10, mm -hmm. right? And that revealed like, wow, our staff has some challenges around working together, around mm -hmm. communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. And that, they, they had to take a hard look at that and say, what's going on? How are we going to help each other to work through whatever conflicts we have, whatever challenges we have? They brought in some mediators who were like, let's talk about how to talk about conflicts. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and you have to attend to that. And so when you sort of pull up the, the, the bed sheet, so to speak, to, to clean mm -hmm. up from, you, you see all of the yeah. stuff that's kind of built up over time. And, and good schools will try to clean that out as often as they can so that they're constantly not just saying, like, well, whatever happens behind the closed door is what happens. And as long as the kid passes the test, it's fine if you never mm -hmm. talk to your co-teacher. Mm -hmm. It's fine if you never show up to the meetings. Just get kids to pass the test. That's not 
okay anymore. And it's processes like this that help to reveal places where there are those dynamics that could be potentially hurtful to a school community. Yeah, yeah well, my next question was actually going to be, I mean, and I think like you've kind of answered it, but student achievement is at the center of mm-hmm. this. But essentially, like we've said, the, the quantitative data is only 11% of the score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That in a lot of ways, this isn't even necessarily about that it's more about the functioning of the school i mean would that be fair well, to say I mean, you, yeah you you mentioned the human element and yeah. i think that's it right what we're trying or what the the framework is trying to do with all these qualitative measures is look at how are all of these various diverse humans coming together in this shared endeavor mm-hmm. right. um and you know if i could veer toward the the philosophy side of things sort of John Dewey talks about how school does not exist outside of society, and in mm-hmm. fact, a school is a society unto itself. Mm-hmm. So if we're to make sure that, that that little microcosm of society that is the school is functioning well and everyone has the opportunity to flourish, these human interactions are paramount. Yeah. And trying to cultivate them and encourage them and foster them and improve them This is what it's going to take for every member of the school community to have the opportunity to flourish. Yeah, and I was also going to say that I think um, it goes back to, it's the cliche, right? But I I believe it. So it's like that it takes a village, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that even, (laughs) that I think that also, I mean, I, and I'm sort of, exposing my bias here too but I found my teacher team um, when I was in the classroom to be incredibly valuable because I could learn I I could learn from them and I think that everyone does have something to learn whether it's from the new teacher Mm -hmm. or the veteran teacher right and I think also that um, one of the challenges that I think I experienced with the school that I worked with this year was that the school was so large some of the teachers didn't even know each other yeah right and so For me, it kind of goes back to this theory of action um, that Brian was talking about, too, is that, like, how much emphasis or how much is the administration privileging this idea of teacher teams, right? Like, what is their belief about the teacher teams, and then how is that translating into action within the school? Like, what steps of action are they taking to try and bring teachers together? But I can say that in this particular school, towards the end of the year, um, what became particularly valuable for the teachers was that the math teachers were talking to the uh, science teachers, yeah. mm. right? And they were able to say, hey, one of the, some of the students in my class are really struggling with this. And the science teachers said, oh, my God, my students are struggling with the same thing. And so they were able to yep. sort of across discipline say, okay, what is the underlying problem here, yeah. right? Yeah. Same with math and ELA teachers. Like, I'm my kids are struggling with answering the word problems or the short response questions on their math exam, like, can you talk to me about what you're doing in your class so that we can better help this student, right? So that yeah. we can, again, come together with a common goal, which is to move our students forward. That I, at the end of the, the year, the, the teachers were able to say that, and I think that that was huge, yeah. right? I, I, I want to respond, though, directly to your question, is that is the student achievement is at the center, but it's also a very small factor mm-hmm. of the, right. the review, right? So it's at the center, and that's the, the sort of promise that if you have all of these qualitative components, if you have trust, if you have strong family community, if you have effective school leadership, if you have rigorous instruction and curriculum and assessments and all those things are together, that will yield right. positive gains in student achievement. Um, and therefore, it doesn't have to be the is-all, be-all of the rating. We want to focus on those getting those qualities in place because that is going to have an impact on the student achievement. So and it's switching focus from the output to the input. That's right. So for the city, 
the metric is only 11% on your, on your right. data. But if you think about, so the city's review is sort of sitting in front of your face, the mm -hmm. state review is the anvil above your head. And that is 100% about your student achievement. Right. Mm -hmm. And that while the state does do uh, some quality reviews and they do have their own tenants mm -hmm. for uh, effective schools, at the end of the day, the state only cares about your data. Right. So on the one hand, yes, teachers and principals are highly motivated by making sure that they're implementing the features of the framework for great schools. But the minimization of the, the student data as 11% as opposed to 85% on the rating has not minimized the impact of the data. It's right. not minimized the impact or the importance of that student achievement because for the state and the federal level, it is the only thing that they care about. And that's the thing that will keep your school open or closed beyond the city, but beyond what the city can say or beyond what the city can control. Yeah, and so you're taking the conversation kind of where I wanted to towards the end. Oh, which, you're welcome. <laughs> I mean, so. So if I'm a teacher, right, and I've listened to these podcasts, I've listened to each individual one, I might say to myself, oh, that's not so hard. But when we start talking about accountability, right, we've talked about grading in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We've talked about standardized tests. We've talked about adopting Common Core, making the move to that, which doesn't necessarily have as strict of accountability measures to that. But if your school's adapting it and trying to do it, um, the impact of ESSA. Um, and how that's mm -hmm. going to change, the teacher evaluation process. And now we're talking about the framework for great schools, and that doesn't even consider the other ethical considerations that you might have and hold yourself accountable to as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So now I start to think about all those things swirling around. I mean, how do I make sense of this, and how do I navigate that professionally? Because that's a lot of stuff that I'm being held accountable to, and some of it is in conversation with each other, and some of it is not. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I honestly, I think this all comes back to this idea of um, uh, schools and teachers having some idea of what they're about, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, whether you want to call it a philosophy of education, a theory of action, mm -hmm. whatever, um, all of these things, all of these are various um, influences that um, a school and a teacher has to, to, to deal with. Um, you know, the, the analogy I would make is, a you know, an old fashioned sailing ship underway. Well, you've got weather, you've got tide, you've got the human element of the people on the crew, you've got your orders and your mission, all of these things have to come together, um, and in order for the ship to be underway and go where it's trying to go. Right. So, um, there, all of these different factors have to be juggled, but ultimately woven together all under the notion of here's how we believe students learn best, here's how we believe our students learn best, yes. more specifically, yep. mm -hmm. and here's what we're going to do to help them. Because mm -hmm. that, it just ask any teacher or any principal, that's, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. How do we help students learn best? Now, w one other thing I'll say just really quickly to use like a more government-y language <laughs> is um, teacher teams and distributed leadership and all that um, can often be taken as uh, something of an unfunded mandate, as they say mm. in government. They say, mm -hmm. here's yet another thing you have to do, mm -hmm. but we're not going to allocate yep. you the resources it takes to get it done. And mm -hmm. usually that resource for teachers is time, yes. mm -hmm. right? So because the notion of what schooling looks like um, and the practice of that is lagging behind this vision of how schools ought to be run, mm -hmm. um, in addition to their up to 150 student contacts in a day, then teachers have to do teacher team meetings along the way too. So... I'm hoping that in the not-too-distant future, we'll see 
as the leadership responsibilities get distributed to teachers that some of their teaching responsibility gets mm -hmm. um, lessened in some way. Mm -hmm. But right now, teachers are in a tight spot where mm -hmm. it's like just, uh, you know, it's another thing on their plate. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I wanted to say that I would hope that teachers recognize and sort of the reason that, that it's important to pay attention to some of these things. I always think it's really valuable for you to know how you're going to be evaluated. Yeah. <laughs> right? So just to know, you know, what is the metric or what is the measure of, of success or of good practice? How will I know if, if I'm doing well as a professional? And this is the articulation of that for the school. And so that's going to help you to understand what kind of pressure is my principal under or is my AP under in terms of creating the structures in the school. But also, it's extremely empowering. Christina and I, our, our research sort of led to some conclusions that were quite similar. Um, and one of the things we talked about was that the evolution of teachers' sense of empowerment mm -hmm. can really devolve, um, especially in schools where they're really struggling to improve student achievement or where there is not a circle of trust with the faculty or with administration. Um, but the framework of great schools and saying, no, as a teacher, you are empowered to have an impact on your school. Um, and to, to really know that and then take that on. And if your school isn't isn't actively seeking out these structures, that this is actually a great tool to say mm -hmm. to your administrator, hey, I think we're supposed to be doing this. Yeah. You have a powerful voice mm -hmm. to impact the trajectory of your school. And it's 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 and, and you are a lever for change. Mm -hmm. And the the teacher leader and the, the empowered teacher is the most powerful lever for change, except for students in, mm -hmm. in in a school community. And I think that knowing what's on the framework and what the values are there, knowing what's in the quality review rubric, understanding the Danielson framework, all of those things are in alignment, mostly. And all of those things continue to express the importance of the teacher's voice and sort of being you know, leaning in, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, into their school community and taking an active role. Yeah. I think for me also it's it's about asking questions. And I think that there, you know, needs to be, again, to go back to trust, I feel like we're belaboring that, but that it is so important, right? Like, to be able to say, like, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. I don't know this, right? And at the teacher level, but also the administrative level, yeah. right? And I think that for me, when I was in the classroom, like, you are so just in the zone with your kids and trying to do what you need to do in order to make sure that they pass the test or that they go to the next grade or whatever, that it does take um, a lot of different levels um, and stakeholders and interested parties to be able to say, okay, here's something we need to be paying attention to, or here's something that came to me and I want to share the information with you. I think that in my, with Roberta's point about research, I think one of the things that greatly impacted one of my teacher, uh, one of my participants' experiences was that they were not sharing. There was not information being shared. And so teachers didn't know why they were being asked to yeah. do certain things and why they were making these changes. And that he constantly kept saying, well, they never told me. I just all of a sudden was being asked to do this. And so I think that being able to say, like, I'm not sure, or yeah. can you help me? Um, and that's, again, where professional development can come in yeah. um, to play a lot because, you know, people have so many responsibilities um, in our current climate and the accountability measures and all of that that professional um, educators can come or, or sort of develop Professional development teachers can come in and say, hey, guys, let me help you understand this yeah. framework. Let me help you understand the quality review um, and sort of filter and sort of synthesize some of the information to make it a little bit more accessible to, yeah. to them. Yeah, that's a great point. And so, I mean, I don't know as if I actually agree with this point, but, you know, this... <laughs> I'll just say no, it anyway. No. 
<laughs> well, no, but, but I think it is helpful to think about because I think a lot of teachers feel this way, right? Like, based on the conversation we've had and everything that was just said about all these things and talking about trusting the teacher. Mm-hmm. So if there is this trust on the teacher, why do I need to be have these mandates of accountability with on me? Because if I didn't have to focus on that and I could just focus on what I believe is doing best for kids, Mm -hmm. then isn't that what's going to happen? And so I think that puts kind of like horse blinders Mm -hmm. on a teacher because it's like, there's all this stuff that I can pay attention to and try to do it. Or I can have a core belief that like as a teacher, what I'm going to do is good for kids and and do that. And I'm not saying that like I would agree with that, Mm -hmm. but I do think a lot of teachers hold that point of view And I think there is a logic to it. So I guess how would we respond to that teacher? (laughs) I mean, I guess I have a couple of thoughts, and I'm um, at the risk of not making entire sense. I'm going to sort of share some of my thoughts. I mean, I think that one of the questions I have is that where are those beliefs coming from, Mm. right? Like where are the beliefs that you are developing over time that you're establishing as a teacher, where are they coming from? What is informing them, right? And I don't necessarily think it needs to be, oh, this framework is going to be the answer to all of your problems. If you can just implement each of these different things, you are going to be a fantastic teacher, right? The same question about standards, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, a lot of teachers view them as, well, these are mandates that tell me what I have to do, how I do them, et cetera. Other teachers that you talk to would say, no, this is actually a framework that's very helpful for me because it helps me know that by the time my students leave me, this is sort of what they should have mastered, right? And so... Even just the word framework, I think, sort of invites this idea that it's a guide, it's Mm -hmm. a um, it's a structure that I can now fill in the nuances, or that I can sort of you know bring myself uh, into the framework to to um, kind of solidify it for me. And so I guess you know that when teachers push back on things um, sort of immediately, or that's sort of their first sort of response, I try to ask the question like. Well, why? What is it that's that's offending you, or what is it that's troubling you, or what is it that you're you're sort of resisting, mm-hmm. right? To try and unpack a little bit about um, what's behind that, because I think that when I was able to do that in my research, a lot came out, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and a lot of um, sort of deeper concerns or deeper issues um, were surfaced. So that's just you know one one thought in response to your question. I agree in asking well, where is it coming from but I also want to know what's the evidence that I have mm. yeah right so I don't need any of these things because I know that I'm a really good teacher right well but no I'm not saying the teachers would say I don't need any of these things but if the goal is student achievement and the goal is using best practice mm-hmm. like if I've been through a teacher ed program and I mm-hmm. have these resources that say what's best practice wouldn't it make sense to focus on doing that and trying to help students like achieving? It's not saying that I don't need this, but saying that it's so overwhelming. Yeah. I just want to do the thing that like I know yeah. is good. I don't know if that makes sense or changes it. But. No, that's that's helpful for me. I'm just trying to think about what's the what's the frame and sort of where yeah. the question is, right? And I think that the way that you just framed it, the sense of like all of that's really overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. It's really, really overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. you can't do it all at once. Mm -hmm. And that's why one of the things that I would always say is what's the one thing that we can do that's going to make the biggest difference and Mm -hmm. hit the most boxes across these different frameworks? It's also the thing where I would agree with Christina that professional development is so crucial here because 
while I while I still agree with what I said earlier, which is that it's valuable to know how you're going to mm-hmm. be evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a 76-page guide yeah. for educators that goes yes. along with yeah. how to understand the the teacher, um, how to understand the school quality guide, right? Principals don't have time to read that. Yeah. Teachers certainly don't have time to read that or check in on the algorithm that's going to help mm-hmm. them to meet their performance index or safe harbor for their AYP. No, they don't. What they need is some distillation mm-hmm. of what some of these expectations are, but then also as a school community or in professional development mm-hmm. to begin to prioritize what's one thing that mm-hmm. I could do to mm-hmm. improve my practice, what's one thing that I could do that's with, that builds on my strengths, that builds on my understandings, that, that allows me to take a first step towards evolution. Mm-hmm. So it isn't about doing everything all at once or abandoning the things that you really believe work well um, for the sake of the framework. But it is about understanding, well, how, do, how is my approach similar or different? Where do I align? Mm-hmm. I mean, Christina and I saw this in, in some of our research where, I mean, you were asking, you know, tell me more about the standards, and, and people didn't really know nope. about the standards. Nope. Right. They hated them, right? But, 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 oh, can you list some of the ones that are so offensive? Oh, I, I, actually, it's the test. It's the assessment. It's the structure or it's the that interpretation been, or the implementation right. of the standards rather than the actual standards themselves. So, so, yeah. so sitting with somebody who can help to sort of distill and focus in, and then choosing one place to to make a mm-hmm. change in your practice so that you can meet your goal. Right? I'm gonna go ahead and assume the best about this imaginary teacher that that <laughs> they they want to do well. Nobody wants to be bad at their job. And I don't know a teacher who's like, I'm so excited my kids are failing. Like we all want to do well. We want to do right by our kids. We don't always know how to do that. And if I know anything about teachers is that I am not going to give you the time of day if I don't think that what you have to say is actually going to be meaningful to me. They are very, very good at detecting BS and will mm-hmm. dismiss it because they have too, because I don't got time for that, right? There's right. too much right. to do. To your point about time, Brian, mm-hmm. there's too much to do. There are too many things that I have to be responsible for to take in a lot of stuff that I think is sort of nonsense or meaningless or doesn't really, isn't really going to have an impact. And so it's, it's up to the administrator or a coach or the professional development organization um, or the district to really help to frame these mm-hmm. beliefs and these ideas in a way that teachers can understand them, to can understand the connection, mm-hmm. to take away all the jargon and the want, 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 so that they can say, here's how it's going to help you attain your goal of helping your students to learn the content that you're teaching. Yeah, and the other thing that I'd say to that is, right what you ended on, help your students learn the content that you're teaching. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's only part of a teacher's responsibility. I think about it like being a, a U.S. senator. Um, that, yes, you're there to represent your... Are you declaring yourself for the 2018 midterms? <laughs> yes. um, Chuck Schumer, watch out. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that um, not only are you there to represent your state, but you have an awesome responsibility to lead, help lead the entire country. So, sure, you've got your students, you've got your content, you've got your classroom, and that we, we may even call that your primary responsibility. Mm-hmm. But teachers have a shared responsibility for the entire school community. Um, and um, to the extent that, um, as, as you said, Matt, it's about student achievement. Well, it's not just about your students' achievement. Right, yeah. It's about all students' mm-hmm. achievement. Um, uh, and um, that's just, it's, it's, it's part of the job. It's, mm-hmm. it's part of what is required to be a teacher in school. 
you can't just close your door and say, well, at least I have total control over what's going on in these four walls. Because first of all, you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but second of all, the, the, the school is a community and you're a part of it. And if you want to see the whole community grow and improve and flourish, that's, that's what it takes. This individual responsibility that you have to your particular students and your content, but then there's this corporate, this communitarian responsibility that you have to all of the stakeholders in the school. Well, that's a very moving speech, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> I want to build on that just briefly to say that, you know, thinking about this imaginary teacher, I did my teacher ed program. I know what good practice looks like. I want to do it. That's great. And if that's true, and if you're a really highly effective teacher, like to close your door is actually but to disservice. Serve, as a yeah. disservice to your colleagues mm-hmm. who maybe don't know, yeah. who maybe could learn a lot from you. You have a lot to offer to them, as, and they're working with your kids, too. And, and that we all have something to learn and we all have something to teach. And that's the, the beauty of the collaboration within the school community. Yeah, I mean, Brian, Roberta, I don't know if you want to add more, but I think we're at the point of final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Christina, I don't know if you have something to share, and then Brian, Roberta, if you have more. Um, that sort of synthesizes our conversation? <laughs> Is that sort of in, what the... in, in a witty <laughs> way. <laughs> right? Oh, no pressure at all. Um... I guess, given we are coming to this table as, you know, a professional development organization, I just, I think that that's sort of um, a big takeaway for me is that there is so much uh, information. There's certainly not a lack of information that's being put out by the administration, by the DOE, by the state, by the government, uh, the federal government. So I think that... The show notes after this podcast. The show notes after this podcast. We will, we will give you the 76 page document if you'd like to read it after this, um, but just that, again, it takes, I'll go back, it takes a village. And I think that um, being able to recognize where you need help and when you need help um, and who those helpers can be, I think, is going to be huge. Um, and so that I, I, I feel um, accountable to a large degree myself, right, to be supporting these schools and continuing these kinds of conversations to make sure that we are advancing student achievement. And beyond just the qualitative score, beyond their state exam, but, like, if you're thinking holistically about what student achievement really means, um, then there's a lot of work to be done. So I, I think that I've reinvigorated my my commitment to professional <laughs> development. <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing I'll say, um, you know, speaking to this idea of the, the shared responsibility that teachers have to the community um, is to, to ask teachers to think about what sort of a place do they want to work, Yeah. right? Do you want to work in a place where you're trying to hold the world at bay and you are this lone wolf who knows best and does best? I mean, if like, or do you want help? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be able to help other people? Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it, it it's sort of, I, I think it's fallacious for a teacher to think that they can work alone or should or should work alone um and i mean unless you're you're robinson crusoe alone <laughs> on your island and even robinson crusoe wasn't alone on his right, island right right then um there's a there's a community aspect to this yeah. for me i was not expecting our conversation to settle so much on trust <laughs> mm-hmm. but i'm so glad that it did and it actually has a affirmed my 
sense that it is the qualitative and the social dynamic that's so mm-hmm. important in building relationships between different um, groups and, and people in different positions and remembering we are on the same team, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And and the team that we're fighting against is the team of ignorance, is the team of poverty, is the team of, uh, of you know, social warfare against yeah. one another, right? That, that, that we are on the same team and we need to work together. But but also the, the understanding, thinking about building a thick band of trust, yeah. right? A, a thick band of trust that, that binds us together, that helps us to become collaborative, um, is also why the review process of schools is so important. And that's because um, the review process is, is a sign that the community can trust the school system, yeah. right? That when as a community member, as a teacher, as a parent, uh, as as you know, a single person out in the world who who wants to make sure that the next generation doesn't mess everything up when I'm done with it, we need to have a faith in mm-hmm. our education system and being able to see what are the ways in which we're evaluating and measuring progress, how are schools doing and meeting those demands, how are they growing over time. That is very helpful in building trust between a school system and the community that it's in. And when there's a breach of that trust. Uh, then I think, as we're seeing on a more national scale, mm-hmm. when there are breaches of trust, it creates division and divisiveness confusion. And, a, and, a, and a confusion, mm-hmm. and it can become the instigator of a crumbling institution. So we want our schools to be strong, and we want there to be a strong sense of trust between the community and the school system so that we can you know, move kids uh, forward as much as possible. Yeah, I think for me, something that really sitting back and listening and thinking about this is just thinking about people and their personalities. Um, the school that I taught out in Chicago, I was on the 11th grade team, and the 11th grade team had this great reputation in the school as being the grade level that worked best together. And often what we would do is we would have the same lunch, and once every two weeks we would just go somewhere off campus for lunch together mm-hmm. and just sit and talk and not even about that. And there was that personal development or that those, the development of personal relationships and there were also grade level teams in the school, though, that would feel like, ooh, the 11th grade team, they do their own thing. And there was this disconnect. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to br- to build all those bridges across the school, but still so necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as we develop and become more ingrained in an email culture, a lot of the things that in school we handle through email, which you know, just furthers that distance from one another. So I don't know, I guess my takeaway from this is like grabbing lunch and like spending time with the people that you work with Mm -hmm. and then being able to get into the work together. And it's a lot easier to assume best intentions when you have that personal foundation. So that's about all the time that we have for today. Um, Remember Brian V. Prep 2018. (laughs) He has a super pack called Brian is Awesome, so make sure to, to donate there. We put the super in super pack. <laughs> <laughs> um, remember, for the show notes, you can go to cpet.tc.columbia.edu, um, and we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.